Good morning, everyone. My name is Carol Werner. I'm the Executive Director of the Environmental and Energy Study Institute. And we are happy to welcome you to this briefing this morning and to also have as a partner for this briefing the Governor's Biofuels Coalition. So our to the topic before us this morning is future fuels. Can biofuels make gasoline cleaner and cheaper? This morning we are going to hear from four experts from our national laboratories who have been uh, doing research in this whole area looking at fuels, uh, looking at combinations of fuels, looking at life cycle greenhouse emissions, looking at fuel performance, uh, looking at the overall efficiency of fuels, the efficiency of engines, and how those things all come together, which all can become quite complex. I think as any of us who start to read uh, materials, background articles, journal articles in terms of any of these areas. And so we think that this is a very timely topic, uh, an important issue to bring before uh, all of you, whether you are in congressional, in congressional offices, federal agencies, or in the overall policy community, because clearly we need to really expand our understanding of what does make sense and what do we know with regard to fuels, which are a very important piece of, obviously, our whole transportation sector. It's what makes our transportation sector run, as we all know. And the transport sector is still a very, very major contributor to greenhouse gas emissions. And all of this becomes a very, very important area to really look at as this country and countries around the world look at how they are going to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions as the countries of the world all make commitments to each other as we move forward in the international climate negotiations. So uh, I want to introduce our speakers this morning. Uh, they will be providing uh, a unified presentation, and therefore I will introduce all of them at the same time. First, we will hear from Dr. Robert McCormick, who is the Principal Engineer with the Fuels Performance Group at Enron, the National Renewable Energy Lab. Dr. McCormick is the platform leader for fuels performance at Enron, and the group that he leads at Enron is focused um, on biofuel utilization particularly looking at fuel properties, fuel quality standards, fuel engine interactions, and fuel effects on air pollution emissions. He'll be followed by Brian West, who is the Deputy Director for Fuels, Engines, and Emissions Research Center at Oak Ridge National Lab. And he uh, has been supporting uh, Department of Energy Research for more than 25 years on vehicle fuel economy, alternative and enhanced fuels, engines, and emissions control technologies. Then, Callie Johnson, Transportation Market Analyst with the National Renewable Energy Lab. And in Callie's role as a Transportation Market Analyst, he is assessing the economics of advanced fuel and transportation technologies in various applications, locations, and policy environments. And our final speaker, before we open it up for discussion with all of you, is Dr. Michael Wang, who is the Senior Scientist for Energy Systems at Argonne National 
laboratory. Dr. Wang leads the systems assessment group at Argonne, and he is the original GREET LCA or life cycle analysis model developer. He has been continuing to lead this very, very important GREET model development at Argonne, and he has been analyzing biofuel greenhouse gas effects for 20 years, and Michael is very much the go-to guy with regard to greenhouse gas emissions and life cycle analysis with regard to uh, biofuels and fuels overall. Uh, I also want to mention that we are hopeful that Congresswoman Tammy Duckworth will be joining us. If she is able to get here, uh, she will be coming uh, towards the latter end of the briefing, so whenever she does arrive, we will just stop right then and so that she can speak to us and, and then resume. So at this time, I want to now turn to Dr. McCormick to start us off. Is as you can see, when you just hear what all of these people are covering, that there are so many issues that are all intertwined, and it's important to get for all of us to have a better understanding, to get a better handle on this and what this really means for, for all of us. Thank you very much, Carol. And thank you all for coming today. It's uh, great to have this opportunity to talk to, to you about our work on high-octane fuels, especially high-octane fuels that are mid-level ethanol blends, and how they can be leveraged to design more efficient engines. Um, this, this work that we'll talk about today has been a collaboration of three U.S. Department of Energy Laboratories, so it's a pretty big, complex effort. Um, today we'll have, uh, I'll give a, a brief overview of what is octane number, what is engine knock, why you might want to care about those things, uh, ethanols, high octane properties, and also I'll talk a little bit about uh, mineral ethanol blends compatibility with refueling infrastructure. Uh, Brian West will go over uh, high octane fuels and their benefits both in flex fuel vehicles and in dedicated optimized uh, vehicles. Callie Johnson will then talk about uh, the hurdles to introduction of the high octane fuels and also production of new vehicles. And we'll talk about uh, our simulations of vehicle adoption and uh, biofuel production uh, supply training uh, uh, simulations as well. And then uh, Michael Wong, of course, will talk about greenhouse gas emission impacts. <coughs> So a lot of what I'm going to talk about is really introductory information that sets the stage for what my colleagues here will talk about. Um, as uh, all of you probably purchased gasoline before, and you've seen these, these yellow numbers on the gas pump, I imagine, pump octane number. And uh, this number is actually the average of two different octane numbers measured in a special engine just for measuring the octane number under two different conditions that 80, more than 80 years ago, this was all developed, were intended to span the complete range of engine operating conditions. Well, today, engines have changed a lot, and most experts in the field don't think this makes that much sense anymore. And it's really just one of those two octane numbers, the, the surge octane number, the Brahma, that really uh, predicts performance of fuels and engines. And for a high, uh, for a high octane fuel, uh, 
many uh, folks in industry as well as the national labs think that it needs to have a, a research octane number of about 100, around about 100, and that translated uh, in today's pump octane into a value of about 95. So I've talked a little about octane number and engine value. Uh, the fuels today generally all have uh, a pump octane number of 87. The vehicles today are designed to operate on that fuel. But if you had a, a lower octane number for some reason, you'd experience what's called engine knock. And I want to try to take a second to try to explain what that is. So in the spark ignited engine, a gasoline engine, the fuel and air are mixed together and then they're ignited with the spark plug. So uh, I'm not much of an engine expert. Even though you guys aren't engine experts, I think you, you know that your engine has a spark plug. Uh, and then what happens is the flame essentially burns away from the spark plug and consumes the fuel and air, releasing a lot of heat, it gets really hot. But if uh, there's an area of unburned fuel and air before the flame front is complete, if it gets too hot and the fuel's octane number isn't high enough, it can auto-ignite, which is essentially an explosion in the engine. Uh, this, can, this is engine knock, and this can damage the engine uh, pretty severely. Now, most of us have never experienced engine knock, but I would think that my grandparents, if, I, if they were still around and I asked them about engine knock, they would know exactly what I was talking about. Uh, but today, we don't experience it because the fuels meet the minimum octane requirement. The cars are designed to run on it, and then the cars have uh, knock sensors and sophisticated controls that change the way the engine operates if they sense engine knock long before the driver could even detect it. Um, but these changes that the, that the engine's computer makes to how it operates to avoid knock also reduce the fuel economy of the engine. So why, why would that be important to you? <laughs> if you're interested in uh, developing more efficient engines with reduced greenhouse gas emissions, um, there's a long list of strategies that you, could, that you could go with, but here we list four of the most important. Increasing compression ratio, downsizing and downspeeding, slowing down the engine, uh, and turbocharging. All of these are really important strategies for making the engine more efficient, but they also all increase the temperature and pressure inside the engine. So if you had a fuel with a higher uh, octane number because of the higher temperatures and pressures, you could use these strategies much more aggressively in your engine design to, to go after even higher fuel economy gains. The last uh, engine design strategy that was their direct injection involves injecting the fuel directly into the cylinder uh, where when the fuel evaporates in the air, it cools everything down a few degrees. And this, this provides even more knock resistance. And uh, this is actually very important for ethanol. So ethanol has uh, some very unique properties as a fuel. It has a very high research octane number of 109 but it also has a very high heat of vaporization, so when the fuel evaporates in the engine, you get a much bigger cooling effect for a, a mid-level ethanol blend or a high ethanol fuel than you get for conventional gasoline. This is actually worth uh, as much as two to three octane number units, this additional cooling that you get from ethanol. So it's, it's the octane number of ethanol plus the, the cooling. 
Another point we want to make about ethanol and octane numbers is on this, these blending curves here. When you blend uh, ethanol into gasoline at low levels, you get a pretty big, pretty big bang from the buck. You get a pretty big response. But as you get up towards E40, you get to a point of diminishing returns where you don't get quite as much octane for each unit of ethanol that you put in. Um, and also, ethanol has about two-thirds the energy content of gasoline, so you're, you're reducing the energy content and not really getting that much octane. So we focused our work on E25 to E40 blends to try to stay in that range where we get a big octane effect. The, the E25 number actually has some benefits from an infrastructure compatibility perspective that I'll talk about uh, in a couple of minutes. So we have... Uh, uh, a need for more efficient engines. We can use high octane fuels to develop more efficient engines, and ethanol is a really great way to get to high octane fuels. That all sounds great, but we don't want to minimize the challenges to introducing new fuel. It is very complicated to introduce new fuel. Um, there's EPA uh, clean air requirements, safety and infrastructure requirements, uh, the need to have uh, to demonstrate fuel engine compatibility and have fuel quality standards. And in the case of high-octane fuels, actually to develop and market uh, optimized vehicles to take advantage of the octane, uh, which leads to this last uh, constraint, the need to coordinate investments in vehicles by refineries and infrastructure. Uh, you know, nobody's going to build the cars if the fuel's not there. Uh, nobody's going to make the fuel if the cars aren't there to burn. How do you overcome the chicken-egg causality dilemma? <laughs> So there are some challenges, but there appear to be pretty substantial benefits, both in terms of vehicle efficiency, uh, reduced greenhouse gas emissions in the, uh, the, uh, the tank to wheels uh, uh, area, and also the opportunity to put a lot more ethanol into the fuel market, uh, which is a low carbon fuel reducing greenhouse gases in, in that domain. Um, so, the three national laboratories represented here have undertaken a scoping study to try to better define more quantitatively what the hurdles are, uh, propose a resolution of those hurdles, and uh, quantify the benefits, uh, potential benefits a little more directly, and uh, uh, recommend future R&D if it's, if it's warranted. So, to kick that off, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, infrastructure compatibility. We've collected a fairly large amount of information about underground storage tanks over the past couple of years, and it's pretty apparent that the vast majority of underground storage tanks that have been manufactured and installed for the last several decades are compatible with any ethanol blend, E100. Uh, but not all of them, just the vast majority. And so the issue is that most of the, the fuel retailers are small businesses that only own one station. And they're not required to keep records of what they've got underground. And so most of them have no idea whether their tank is compatible. And in order to sell a blend over E10, they have to be able to conclusively demonstrate that their tank is the right tank to hold this fuel. Now that can be done. They need to bring in an exper experienced inspector to look at their system and figure it out, probably cost them a couple thousand dollars. But that, that is one of the, the hurdles that we have to be overcome. 
The second hurdle is that E10, which is conventional gasoline dispensing equipment, is not going to be compatible with these higher ethanol blends. But there is available uh, UL listed uh, retrofit for these pumps to make them compatible with blends up to E25. It costs about $5,000. The uh, so that's why we picked E25 as a, one of the blend levels we're looking at because uh, the infrastructure barrier introduction of that fuel appears to be a bit less than if you go higher, or you have to purchase the retailer would have to purchase the 85 pounds, which costs about $25,000, a much more significant investment for a small business. So with that, I'll turn it over to my colleague Brian West and talk about vehicles and uh, how they perform with high octane fuels. Good morning. Thanks, Bob and Carol. Appreciate the invitation to be here. So I want to talk about some of the vehicle and engine work that's going on. Uh, we're, we're being funded by the EU to do a lot of this work, and we're working very closely with some of the automated factories uh, who are providing hardware and even uh, funds in in some cases. So Bob talked about downspeeding and downsizing. I'm going to try to explain to you a little bit uh, in a geeky way what that is. Um, as Bob said, we can make more important power with higher octane fuel. And um, the methanol, as he said, very effective boosting the octane number. So this graph I'm showing here, this is what we call an engine map. And on the uh, y-axis there, it says indicating mean effective pressure. That's an engine heat number for torque from a single cylinder research engine. So, so think of the y-axis there as torque. And uh, the x-axis there is engine speed. You've got a tachometer in the car and an engine speed. That's like RPM, it's how fast the engine is turning. So what I've got here outlined in red is the engine map for this uh, Pontiac Solstice engine, which is factory 9.21 compression ratio and 87 octane gasoline. It's a, it's a great engine, it, it does its job, and that's the engine map you have. If you raise the compression ratio to 12 to 1, I get this smaller gray area here outlined in red now. So we severely limited how much torque and power we can make by raising the compression ratio. We've made the engine more efficient, but we're just not making as much power. So this is this would be very troublesome to drive. This is why the manufacturers, one reason they don't make optimized FFPs, they can take advantage of the octane of the 85 because they still have to protect the, the lowest available octane. So with 87 octane and 12 to 1 compression ratio, your engine is very limited. However, Change the fuel to this high octane 30, so we take an 87 octane gasoline at 30% ethanol. It boosts the run to 101 in this case. Now we've doubled the available torque from this engine with E30. And why that's important is lines of constant power look like this. So in today's engine, you can imagine you might be over here at 2800 RPM cruising down the road, making power you need to push your car down the road. And in the future engine, what we want to go do is slide this curve to the left, and that's what we mean by down speed. So if we can, if we cut the speed in half, we have to double the torque. Well, obviously in that little gray area, we could double the torque. We can't go there. But we can go up here with the green fuel, and, um, and the reason that's important is because the best efficiency points on the engine map are up here in the upper left corner. So we want to live there as much as we can. That's where our fuel economy comes from. So that's what downspeeding is about. Downsizing also would be, you know, because we've got this big engine map there, we can either put this engine in a larger vehicle, or we can make the engine smaller. So if we make the engine smaller, that's downsizing. We can make the engine smaller with this fuel, high compression ratio, 
and the consumer would buy a car that performs up to today's car, but would have much better efficiency. So, uh, increasing the torque with the, the fuel and the uh, high compression enables downspeeding and downside and gives you better fuel economy. This is for future vehicles, right? So we're going to talk a little bit about how we might get that fuel in the marketplace. Um, but what's exciting, Rob talked about the, uh, the energy density of ethanol, it's two thirds the energy density of gasoline. And uh, what's, what's exciting here is in the 25 to 40% range, we think the efficiency gains can overcome the uh, energy density loss. So you get the same fuel economy in this future vehicle with the fuel that you would get in today's cars, but producing less, less greenhouse gases. So every gallon of ethanol used in this way displaces a full gallon of gas. And I think that's, that's the really exciting thing about this. So let's talk about flex fuel vehicles for a second. Um, I think you're all familiar with flex fuel. They're cars that are designed to use any blend of gasoline from, from any blend of ethanol from 0 to 85%. There's over 17 million of them on the road today. Um, unfortunately, they don't consume a lot of ethanol. They consume less than 300 million gallons last year, which is about 13 gallons of 85 per vehicle per year. Uh, the reasons for that are, are numerous, but uh, one of them is the, uh, the tank mileage, the energy. Because of the energy density, because the vehicles are not optimized for the fuel, um, they, they get lower fuel economy. So here's certification data from EPA for hundreds of flex fuel vehicles. This is the E85 fuel economy on the y-axis and on the X we have gasoline fuel economy. This is E-zero gasoline certification gas. You can see they got about a 27% loss in MPG when you, when you run on E85. That's one reason I think consumers uh, shy away from it. If the price isn't right, then um, their, their cost per mile is actually higher. So consumer acceptance is key, of course. If we're going to have a new fuel in the marketplace and people don't buy it, then it's, it's not going to do us any good. So we did a small study to see if we could develop market pull. You know, what if we could get flex fuel owners to want this mid-level high-octane blend? Then they clamor for it, the retailers put it in, and then when the fuel is virtually everywhere, then the, the manufacturers could build dedicated cars for it, like I talked about in the previous slide. So what we did is we took four uh, late model flex fuel vehicles, and we did what we call a wide open throttle test. Um, I'm sure all the young people in the room have done this before. You step on the gas, you basically put the pedal all the way to the floor, and this would be representative of what you might do when you're trying to merge out your own the, the beltway. So, um, and we, so we did that test with an 87 octane E10, and we did the test with a 100 Ron E30. What we found was that three of the four vehicles had significant performance improvement, and this isn't about racing. This is about being able to safely merge into the interstate, right? I mean, if you, if you have a little bit more power and you've got an extra 20 feet or so at the end of that on-ramp, that means you can safely merge into traffic instead of having to step on the brake and start over. So what's really exciting here is that with, with the E30 on the vehicles, we've got the same performance improvement that was in the automotive press for a very similar vehicle with the E5. And that just highlights this nonlinear octane blending that, that Bob mentioned so this is, uh, this is important for two reasons. One is, you know, can we get the flex fuel owners to, to want the fuel so that they use the fuel that would move more ethanol? If half the FFDs use E30 half the time, we consume an extra half a billion gallons of your ethanol. That's about 4% of what we use now. That would be a significant increase. But better than that is if you, once you establish this uh, wide range availability of the fuel, then the manufacturers can build cars that are designed to use it. So one more little uh, experiment we did. Uh, we had a Ford Fiesta EcoBoost in our lab recently. Uh, 
this is a, it already has a downsize, so you've probably heard of the eco the kind of engine that would certainly take advantage of a high octane fuel, and I'm going to demonstrate how it does. Uh, this comes from the factory with a one liter, three cylinder, turbocharged, gasoline, direct injection engine, so these are all some of that alphabet soup that Bob talked about in his earlier slide about the kind of technologies that you would expect to see in these future vehicles. Let me notice in the other's manual, it says you can use regular in this car, but for severe duty service, you'll get better performance with premium. And we also noticed that Ford authorizes the use of E15 in this car. So what we did was we, we blended 87 octane E0 with 15% ethanol. And what that did, increased the bond, as you see, from, from 91 to 98, so really big increase in the octane number. But it did, uh, it did impact the, uh, the energy density, as we would expect. It, it drops at about 5.5%. So if the car was not optimized at all for the fuel, you would expect about a 5% loss in miles per gallon. So we ran on these three different tests. One's called a city test, one's a highway test, and one's this real high-level, aggressive uh, USO6 test, is called. And what I've plotted here is the relative fuel economy. So the gray bar is the gasoline fuel economy divided by the gasoline fuel economy. So it's one. So all those gray bars are one. The red line is this 94.5% uh, energy density difference that we would expect. So we would expect the green bars be down there at the red line. You can see they're all above that. Why? Because the engine's more efficient at this high octane 15. So much so that on this high low USM6 test, we have 4.5% efficiency improvement. So this is that volumetric fuel economy parity that we're talking about. And, and it's important to point out that E15 and E0, that energy density difference is the same as you see between E25 and E10. So E10 is ubiquitous across the country now. We have a, a high octane E25. We believe that future vehicles can be the same fuel economy as today's cars. So in closing, um, to, to demonstrate that further, we have a dedicated vehicle project. I don't have any data to share with you. This is underway. I hope to have data uh, for the end of the year. General Rogers is supporting us here. We're in the process now of, of designing distance. This, this Cadillac ADS is equipped with a two-meter turbocharged gasoline direct injection engine. Again, the kind of engine Thank you. 
participants because each one of them needs to benefit from it somehow in order to, in order to adopt it. We would then went on to identify the hurdles of, of off adoption um, because, and so to do this, we did a literature search and we also did extensive interviews with representatives from these four uh, key stakeholders. We then proposed resolutions to the hurdles and then we, we grouped a bunch of those resolutions together according to what were compatible with one another or even synergistic with, with each other and came up with eight market scenarios for how this could be rolled out. Um, we then um, modeled the market scenarios in a couple of different models to, to test kind of what Bob was talking about, about the, the chicken or egg. Do you, get the, do you get the fuel out there or the vehicles out there first? And so that's what these models helped us do. Uh, we ran it through the um, a vehicle adoption model, which helped us uh, find out under what conditions uh, the drivers are going to purchase these vehicles and how many of these vehicles are going to purchase. And then we took those vehicle numbers and put them in a, in a fuel supply chain model to kind of see, you know, if, if there are these vehicles out there, how could the fuel be produced and supplied? So to start with the benefits that the different stakeholders would, would see, um, the, the, one of the primary benefits to the drivers are potential fuel savings. Um, so what this chart on the lower right-hand corner is, is if you look back, um, back in time, if, if E25 and E40 had been, had been blended from retail E85 and E10, um, these are the prices that it would have cost. And you can see that there are pretty um, decent price savings throughout the entire decade. And then EIA projects um, those price savings that continue into the future. And then, so not only is not only is HOF less expensive, but it also has reduced volatility, which volatility really kills a lot of business plans and hurts the economy. So you can see that you can see that whenever whenever uh, fuel prices spike. E10, which is what we're using now, spikes a lot further and higher than E25 or E40. Um, another advantage for the for the drivers is increased torque and performance applications. That's increased acceleration or increased towing capacity, which we all like. And then there are the energy security and environmental attributes. You know, you you'll have to import less petroleum from the Middle East. Um, there's lower greenhouse gas emissions, lower criteria pollutants. Um, Things like that, that a lot of the drivers appreciate. Um, and then the vehicle, the vehicle manufacturers also stand to benefit from, from off. Um, uh, one of the benefits is the lower greenhouse gas emissions, you know, as they have uh, pressure on them in various forms to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. This is going to help them to, to achieve that, that overall goal that's um, going to continue into the future. And then we have increased. They also benefit from the increased torque in performance applications. The fuel retailers benefit because profit fat margin. So, so profit margin is the difference between what the fuel retailers pay at retail and what they sell it for. And, and the profit margins are notoriously low for gasoline because it's such a, because it's um, such a cost competitive market. Uh, what other what other products can you drive down the street or like on, on your way to work see five different price signs saying, okay, you know, you can get the exact same products, or as far as most consumers know, the exact same products um, at five different places. You're just going to choose the one that is one penny less. Um, and so so that's that's a, 
being a fuel retailer, is there's just not much they can do to increase their profit margins. But if they adopt Hoff, um, and they're the only, at least at first, they're the only retailer um, within a certain area, they, they can they can eat out a higher profit margin uh, potentially because they there isn't as much competition nearby. And then um, often also differentiate state, uh, stations in the uniform market. Um, uh, stations really that, that's one of their that's one of the central ways that they try to compete with each other is um, pointing out ways that they're different from one another in this very uniform market. And so if they adopt half, uh, they might they might be seen as being kind of more technologically savvy or cutting edge, um, especially if it's kind of marketed as a performance fuel, um, and then people might might prefer that station uh, over the neighboring stations. And then uh, finally, the cheaper fuel could result in, in a, an estimated 3% increase in trips to the convenience store just based on the price elasticity and the and cost savings. And then the fuel producers could benefit uh, because it would help them comply with the renewable fuel standard. Uh, it would help them achieve economies of scale for cellulosic ethanol, uh, which Interrel has um, done some studies into the how price competitive cellulosic ethanol is, and it's it, it's it's editing. it's really well positioned right now in terms of the technology being able to deliver price competitive ethanol. But we don't have the economies of scale to bring about that price competitive um, aspect, and so um, and so Hoff could potentially bring upon those economies of scale to really bring the, uh, the price of that cellulose to ethanol down. And then it could also enable enable lower octane blend stocks, um, which which are cheaper and. And then uh, one more is that it, it also enables um, it, it, an export market uh, for these fuel retailers if they're um, setting less of their petroleum refinery products um, to to the U.S. markets. They can they can expand into international markets. So now that we've seen that like all the key parties could potentially benefit from off, uh, we we kind of dug into the hurdles and then the resolutions of adopting it. And so, after a literature a review and then interviewing the, the representatives from, from industry, we kind of came up with, with 30 central hurdles, which sounds like a lot, sounds kind of intimidating, but, but we also came up with 94 potential resolutions uh, that we identified, categorized, and discussed. Um, we, um, we categorized them according to, according to how formidable they are, and if they're showstoppers or not, if they're
the various scenarios of when people purchase the vehicles, how many of them, how many off vehicles are on the road as it increases over time. And you can see we, we started at, at 2018, which may not be realistic, but it's good to have it as, as close to possible because then the, the parameters in, in the model are, are more concrete. Um, and we started them all at the same time, so you can compare them side by side uh, rather than having various delays. Um, and so I won't jump into that, um, into the spaghetti there where, um, where the different scenarios are increasing, uh, but I will point out some highlights, uh, some lessons learned from the combination of the scenarios and contrast between the scenarios. Um, so overall, um, all the scenarios achieved a substantial percentage, that's between 43 and 79%, of that duty vehicle stock uh, by 2035. Um, so that's, that's, a, that's a lot of vehicles out there. That's encouraging. Um, and then more of these vehicles are adopted if HOF is E40 uh, because they offer the consumer greater fuel savings and they offer, they offer the vehicle manufacturer greater greenhouse gas benefits. And then you have a $2,500 purchase incentive, which incentives were one of the, one of the parameters that we tested out. If, if, and what that means is that for years before HOF was introduced, if 
about the fire refineries um, limited the market um, because um, it, it, it takes a lot of resources to build a new fire refinery and ramp up. And so, um, and so for a number of scenarios, particularly before 2025, um, the, the fire refineries couldn't quite catch up to the potential demand. Um, and then for the scenarios, or after 2025, unless they did catch up, then the limiting factor was top vehicle adoption, which is the number of vehicles out there on the road, um, as we talked about in the previous slide. And it's important to note that the feedstock availability, now this is um, the majority study was again ethanol, the feedstock availability costs are not the limiting factors in any of the scenarios. And so that is the market assessment. I'm going to hand it over to Michael Wanda to talk about the well-wheeled analysis. Thank you, Kevin. Um, so, yeah, of course, we all know one of the uh, motivations for our fuels in general and uh, the you know, new transportation fuels, and uh, we are technologies to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, of course, to introduce half with ethanol plant, there are some uh, debates about the potential trade-offs of the engine efficiency and versus the potential refinery efficiency panel. So overall, our world wheels analysis address these potential trade-offs uh, to see if we indeed achieve greenhouse gas benefit uh, by consider all the factors together. On the engine efficiency side, uh, all and Brown already present the potential efficiency gas and why we are history. Uh, in our work analysis in this project, uh, the last slide in uh, this table, this is the base of his uh, assessment of the technology and testing results from Oakbridge. Uh, we decide uh, in, uh, the, in our baseline analysis, we decide 5% efficiency gains are, are, are reasonable uh, you know, assumption to use. On the other hand, if we look at the potential downspeed, down, uh, downsize engine and other technologies together, we see the potential that can get to up to 10% efficiency gain. So we deal with the 10% as a sensitivity phase, together with the 5% efficiency gain. Uh, using some other studies completed in the past several years and there are their assessment of the potential real efficiency gain. So you know, our goal is uh, to put uh, the petroleum refinery changes together with uh, real efficiency gains together to see the overall effect. So you know, our you know, specifically our virtual wheels our tasks, our projects to do detailed refinery modeling to see what type of changes we anticipate in refineries in order to produce half. Uh, we address two critical issues in our refinery modeling. One issue is both are really nice. Uh, how, do, how do we produce high alcohol fuels with refinery, with ethanol plant? At some time, we do know we have uh, the uh, vapor pressure constraint you know, from EPA regulations, so the RVP constraint. Uh, 
to the address that always the octa-fuel production. And of course, how much fuel we produce would impact the U.S. refinery industry. So Kelly presents the eight scenarios. So we based on Kelly's eight scenarios on the potential market penetration of half of half. And level so that if the U.S. refinery industry to produce late amount of half, what's the impact on the refinery? And of course, uh, we address the upstream crude production and ethanol production as well in our analysis and later we I you know oh, Brian and myself already discussed the uh, VR efficiency there. So together as you see in the uh, chart we cover from the fixed stock production and fuel production in refineries for petroleum brand stock and personal uh, production our refineries and they finally Half combustion in reactors. And uh, you know, in order to address uh, L, uh, the petroleum uh, refineries, we use uh, the LP model, model, the linear program model, to address this uh, specific area. Uh, uh, this is the type of uh, models used uh, by petroleum refineries for their optimization. So industry use LP for the refinery optimization on an annual basis to maximize their profit or reduce their cost. So we use the same model as industry use. And of course, for LP model, you have a set of input, the type of crude you bring in and the type of products you produce. So in our case, we specify the LP model to produce half gasoline to get many other petroleum products in US refineries. And here are some sample results I present to you and we have a very detailed report, this all detailed result. So on the left side of the, the, the uh, slide, this is the chart to show you the overall petroleum, uh, petroleum refinery efficiency from, uh, say, um, your limited half penetration to very high half penetration up to about 70% of the gasoline market is half. And the different ethanol brand for E10 to produce half or E25 or E40. Those are the three last you barely see that they can be stacked together. So the take-home message from that chart is uh, the petroleum refinery efficiency change very small to produce half. So we uh, anticipate a very small change in the refinery efficiency. And on the right side is uh, when we dissect the overall petroleum refinery efficiency into gasoline efficiency. Because we have different products and we need to analyze the different products, the overall efficiency. So even when you see the gasoline efficiency changes, changes really small. So that's on the refinery side. On the other hand, uh, Kelly alluded to the possibility to expand the U.S. gasoline export to the 
people have to increase the ethanol brand into the gasoline market. So here on the left side is the domestic gasoline production efficiency change. So again, you see very small change in the domestic gasoline production. On the other hand, on the export gasoline market, uh, we do see some uh, somewhat significant change or you know, significant reduction in the export gasoline uh, efficiency. And in our virtual wheels analysis, we did uh, include uh, the so-called spillover effect from the domestic gasoline to the export gasoline. So this is included in our virtual wheels analysis. And here is uh, the uh, result on uh, greenhouse gas emissions for the uh, gasoline black stock. So yeah, yeah, this is confirmed uh, what you saw in the previous two slides, the uh, small change in petroleum uh, refining efficiency and uh, gasoline refining efficiency. And this is greenhouse gas emissions in, in grams per megajoule of gasoline black stock. So again, you see small changes among E10 half, E55 half, and E45. For both pad 2 and pad 3, of course, E22 pad, you see somewhat increase in greenhouse gas emissions in pad 2. That's the Midwest uh, mid, uh, refinery district, uh, primarily Chicago, and pad 3 is the Gulf Coast refinery district. And the increase in PAT2 is due to our significant share of Canadian oil sand in the crude input in PAT2 refining. So that's uh, the gasoline brand stock. So now when we produce the final hot product, meaning the gasoline brand stock and ethanol brand together, what is the result for each unit of fuel produced? So again, now you see E10 half, E25, and E40. So here, the baseline, the E10 regular gasoline, that's baseline, that's the dot half, as you see in the chart. And so now you see a reduction for E25 half and E40 half. And this reduction is from the lower common characteristics of the ethanol part. So when we have core ethanol, we see some reduction. When we have cellulosic ethanol, as you see on the right side of the chart, we have significant reduction. So, so yeah, the point is, on the gasoline grinding stock side, we see a little change in carbon capacity. But when we bring ethanol into gasoline grinding stock, we see reduction because of the lower carbon characteristic of ethanol. And now we bring efficiency onto the ethanol black half. So your, as I mentioned earlier, we have 5% efficiency assumption at our base case, and we have 10% efficiency as our sensitivity case. So when we bring efficiency in, uh, we see a further reduction from uh, the ethanol brand effect. So now the efficiency so this is the pro-market result for pro-market efficiency now is a factor for the overall result. So you know, now I'm going to use animation to re-emphasize what you saw in the last part.
So efficiency itself gave us our self-made salary reduction in the best case assumption or about 9% reduction if we Good fuel economy and, uh, and and performance 
and also at the same time coming from a renewable resource that's going to help us substantially lower greenhouse gas emissions, all of which are very important factors as we think about uh, the, way, the way forward. So let's open it up for your questions and comments, and I should just mention that we are momentarily uh, expecting Congresswoman Duckworth to come. So go ahead, and if you could identify yourself, please. Bob Kozak, Advanced Biofuels USA. I first want to thank everybody on the panel. Really great presentation. I'm really glad this information is getting out. And I really applaud the work that you guys have been doing on this topic that isn't all that well known. Um, the one comment and I guess question I, I would like to state is that I think that there is just simply one barrier to this happening, which is the lack of political will to make it happen. Uh, we know that uh, the, the the E25, E30 was proposed in Tier 3 two years ago, and it was shot down by the administration. Not only was it shot down, but there were factors uh, as part of the CAFE standards, such as the R factor and the F factor, that could have been corrected properly to encourage the introduction of vehicles and fuels and infrastructure that weren't done. Uh, I'd also have to point out that we have switched fuels in the past. We went from we went from leaded to non-leaded, and, we, and we went to stage two. So uh, my question is, uh, do you think do you think we could? How could we overcome the political hurdles? Okay, um, could we hold that question? And, oh, okay. All right. Um, go ahead. Do you want to go ahead and, and answer, and then we'll turn to the council. Well, you've been, in a sense, ask us a political and policy question when we're here to inform you about technical issues. Cer certainly, I, I think uh, uh, all these things can be done. There's no reason why they can't be done, but um, I don't think we're going to be addressing the political or policy aspects of your question. Um, okay, and that's something that I, I think in terms of, of um, how to best deal with this, as Bob said, there are a lot of things that policymakers need to address, and but that we're not dealing with insolvable problems by a long stretch. So at this time, I am honored to turn to Congresswoman Tammy Duckworth, representing the 8th District of Illinois. Uh, she is in her second term here in the House of Representatives and has had a very distinguished career. I think everybody is probably familiar with, with her story. Uh, she is an Iraq veteran. She has served in the Veterans Administration as an Assistant Secretary. She uh, has, uh, and, and, and again, is in her second term here where she is making certainly a mark here in the House with her leadership in House Armed Services Committee, the uh, Oversight uh, Committee, and also on the Special uh, Benghazi Committee. And she has been uh, a force, a very, very important voice on many different issues here in the House. And I think that also as a new mother, she is bringing yet another important perspective 
that is important for all policymakers to understand. I want to mention also that with regard to all of the things that she has done, which has helped her understand how so many things come together and are, and are linked, just as what we've been hearing about this morning, that she has also spent time really looking at public health issues. And that is another aspect with regard to thinking about our transport sector and fuels that is very, very important and that we hope to do even more work on and working with her. Congressman Duckworth. Rather than Middle Eastern oil. 
Like many of my colleagues, I'm disappointed by the EPH recent announcements um, announcement of the RFS. The move was an improvement over the last one, and I'm glad that it's getting back on track after many delays, but I'm still really concerned that the proposed requirements are short of the levels Congress intended, and short of what American farmers and businesses can produce. It's my strong belief that the development of biofuels will protect our environment and strengthen our economy and our nation's security. I will continue pushing for strong RFS as the rule is finalized. And you should know that this is not something that is um, debated just over in the energy and commerce subcommittees, but it's something that is really debated all throughout Congress. In armed services now, uh, I've gone through three NDAs, which is the, the building of the defense budget. And so far, every time, there has been someone who will introduce a bill that actually would prohibit the United States Navy from developing biofuel capabilities. And to me, that is just the most ridiculous thing in the world. You know, the Navy has actually tried and, and successfully um, launched a training, a service uh, warfare training exercise in the Pacific using all biofuels for the ships, for the aircraft, for the, everything, and, and has demonstrated that it is something that it is capable of doing. Um, and I really want to equate this to another precious resource, clean and drinkable water. Uh, in the military, the Marines have what's called a world unit. This is a unit that can come in and generate its own water. They have their own osmosis uh, system. And so what did they do is, I was in Guyana on a humanitarian mission, and the, this Marine unit, world unit came in, stuck a hose into which was essentially sewage, and produced drinkable water for the unit on the other end so that we could continue to support the mission of buildings, hospitals, and schools, and that humanitarian mission. These units increase the capacity and the capability of our United States military to be able to fight or, or serve humanitarian missions on the ability self-sustaining. Why can't we do that with biofuels? Why don't we have that capability? You know, I served in Iraq on a base, the LSA Anaconda, Logistics Support Area Anaconda, that was huge, the largest base in, in there. Um, and the amount of food scraps and the amount of waste that was generated on that base um, was significant. I would like to see the U.S. military be able to have a biofuel equivalent for a rogue unit so that our military men and women can have access to those so we can reduce this, the, rely, the reliance on um, uh, uh, petroleum products. And also, if we're using them to have a much higher standard um, uh, so that what we have to depend on will go a lot further in terms of knowledge standards. And, and, and for me, it's all about keeping those troops out of those vehicles in convoys getting killed. This is a, not just a, an issue about economic security for this nation, incredibly important, but it's also about making sure we keep our military strong and capable um, and, and able to uh, respond and fight whenever the people of the United States ask us to. So I, when I have this discussion, um, I, I make a little bit of headway with my colleagues because I don't come from it as your traditional granola-eating tree-hugger Democrat, which I am. But, but I have a discussion with my colleagues on a much more tactical level about military security and military um, readiness, and, and that has been so as you're continuing with this discussion today, think about other ways you can frame the dialogue beyond um, um, the one that, that is the traditional one that we all embrace, which is its, you know, environmental protection. But think about other ways that we can frame this. The economic strength point uh, argument is definitely uh, an important one. But, but there are ways to, to reach out and find compromise on this. And, and so uh, thank you for being here today. I 
want to uh, make sure that uh, you continue the work that you're doing, um, and uh, I'll keep driving my F-150 to uh, come up with something better. I, I, I do have uh, actually a plug-in hybrid, so um, uh, I'm all in on this, and, and let's make sure that um, uh, we continue to improve and we continue to hold the administration um, uh, to the goals that we have and not to back off of those goals. Because every time that we have set the goals, um, industry has met them. And, and so to say that the goals are too high um, is really to underestimate the capability of the United States manufacturing industry because I believe in American innovation and American know-how and to keep those goals high only means that we will reach them and that we will have the edge on our competition globally. Thank you very much.
these are toxic substances, benzene, polyethylene, xylene. So, so if it doesn't come from ethanol, what, what are the options? And secondly, don't, is it also working well if we move into tighter ozone standards and more of the country goes into ozone unattainment and has to adopt RFG, that definitely caps our impacts. So I mean, we're really, we could be on a, on a real shortage of octane, and so doesn't this make it even more compelling what you're, what you're doing here? Yeah, uh, the, we did uh, restrict uh, aromatic contact uh, in our LP model to uh, meet the uh, EPA and uh, California's requirement. Uh, without uh, escalating, if we were going to make half, if we were going to eat with the current uh, US refinery configuration, we can only produce maybe up to 20 to 25% half is the share of the SU market. So if we're going to go beyond that, then ethanol will help tremendously. That's why you know, we said ethanol is a great enabler for half, significant half production. What, and, and some of the other, uh, are you talking about restrictions about alkalates or isoctane or, or those? Are those the other, I'm trying to remember what some of those other options are, but... Those are, and uh, your wind culture reformat, of course, will continue to play a critical role for half production. And other component, some undesirable gasoline component for U.S. gasoline requirement. Uh, basically, uh, we said uh, those can get into the export market. That's why you see the uh, domestic gasoline versus uh, export gasoline. So some gets into there. Uh, these are discount on price. So we didn't assume, I didn't assume a discount price for export gasoline because some undesirable components add up in that market. Uh, we took that into account in our workforce analysis. So we had all the details in our LP model results that which components increase, increase the which components decrease the whole data in our detailed results. And I think it's also true that the fun refiners are very highly optimized right now, and they don't really want to make more aromatics. So ethanol is, is in a lot of ways the, the best choice to make the only choice. Uh, it costs them something to make more, more aromatics. So aromatics are more expensive to produce. We also know that if the ozone standards are tightened, that's an issue because that's all connected again to aromatics. And that basically we've been dealing with a situation where the octane in fuels has been provided by uh, a petroleum derivative in terms of uh, the combination of, of um, chemicals in terms of, of aromatics. Or you can get your aromatic, or you can get your octane um, from uh, from ethanol. So that basically it's a renewable oct or, uh, octane provider in terms of ethanol or um, uh, aromatics to provide the octane coming from oil products. So, and all of these things that you are hearing are totally related in terms of thinking about what happens if 
if ozone is tightened as well. And it was very interesting in terms of knowing that the cost goes up for refineries to produce ever more aromatics. Okay, another question. Hi, I'm Kevin Adler from Oil Price Information Service. And I, I think I'm directing this question to Mr. Johnson, but certainly welcome anybody's answer. The first is, I have two, and the first is just a simple thing that the 30 uh, billion gallons that you, that you referenced in the slides, is that in addition to this, what, roughly 13, 14 billion gallons of ethanol use now, so is it incremental 30 or is it a total of 30? And that's incremental. Um, well, it's so it's the 30 billion gallons are all going into off, um, and then off does cut down the amount of E10, and therefore the amount of ethanol going into E10. You know, so it's so it's incremental and then subtracts some out quite a bit out of E10. Okay, okay, thanks. Uh, and then the second question, uh, and it, it goes back again to octane, uh, is uh, my understanding is that uh, a lot of the blending of E10 now is into uh, a gasoline with a lower, lower than 87 octane, that, that refiners are not using uh, the, the octane benefits to, to raise octane above 87. So in talking with them, are they even in, interested in that, or do they sort of look at it as this, this way to take this cheap, low octane, uh, blend stock, and, and, and get to the minimums? Their, their refiner's business is all about just being minimum spec and making you know, half a penny a gallon on an ocean load, ocean of, of product. So, uh, yes, during the, the last 10 years, they've all re-optimized their systems to make what we call sub-octane blend stock for oxygenated blending or sub-octane bob. It has about 84 <coughs> And when you put the 10% ethanol in it, um, they don't have any incentive to do otherwise, regulatory or, or financial. Um, and I don't see them doing anything differently unless you know, there's a market demand for more premium gas or, uh, uh, or for high-octane fuel uh, or, or some, other, some other reason why they would do, do things differently. Hi, I'm Karen Pollard with um, Representative Denny Heck. Um, when we have to answer um, men, um, and we get men on all sorts of things, but um, what mostly I heard was concern on for if, if the standards were raised, um, that the small engines, folks that had small engines, would if that would ruin their engines. Um, I think it was mostly motorcycles and snowmobiles. Um, can you speak to that? I, you know. Well, I don't think that necessarily is a high-octane fuels issue. Um, the, the small engines today should be compatible with tubes and ethanol because it's the only fuel available. So hopefully there, the manufacturers of those engines have kept up with the times and made their, their uh, engines available. Um, you know, I don't know if motorcycle manufacturers would like to design motorcycles to use this high octane fuel, uh, but as long as there are vehicles and engines around in significant number that could not use, you know, an E25 or E40 blend, then 
we have to find a mechanism to ensure that uh, a compatible fuel is available. That's uh, because if they, you know, they're not going to be an E10 compatible uh, car or motorcycle or lawnmower or whatever. It's not going to be compatible with E25 or E40. That's one of the hurdles that we looked into, and it's important to keep in mind that, um, that in order for a fuel to be considered convenient, essentially the cost of convenience is nothing, um, it only has to be offered in about 20% of the current um, refueling stations. You know, and so, so E10 or E0 will probably be around for quite a while, and then there's an increasing number of lemon pumps also that could um, keep it available. And then and I was talking to the National Association of Convenience Stores, you know, getting, getting their perspective on it. And, um, and, and they did, um, one idea that came from them was that, you know, Home Depot could offer a zero and Marines could offer a zero. Um, that, you know, big home improvement stores like that had kind of that flat and sophistication to be able to offer fuel. So they saw that as one possibility um, going well in the future, like if, if E0 did disappear from the other, um, the other stations. Just a comment, um, not everybody here is old enough to remember when, when diesel started to get popular in the 70s, but there were diesel vehicles being sold in the United States, and uh, it was a hard field to find. And today, less than 5% of electric vehicles are diesel. Diesel fuels everywhere. So we have, we have fuel everywhere for a tiny piece of fleet. What we're talking about here, I think, is uh, hopefully a growing uh, size of the fleet. And as Calvin said, it's probably about 20% of the stations. It would pick up from there. As Bob said, we need to maintain the legacy fuel for the legacy vehicles. Um, that's a really, really good point because I wanted to ask kind of a follow up question on that too. In that, um, during, I think it was Kelly, during your presentation, you uh, commented about um, in terms of looking at sort of small businesses with, uh, that didn't know what they had in their, you, you know, essentially in terms of looking at their, their tanks and the cost of, of their having uh, updating infrastructure or anything like that, or maybe Bob, you, you raised this. Uh, and so I was curious though, in terms of the percentage of, of uh, installations that are really those kinds of situations as opposed to the uh, uh, much larger, let's say, convenience stores, chains, uh, or whether it's your target of Walmarts or you know, other, um, other facilities that offer a lot of pumps, a lot of fuels all over the country. So what are we looking at in terms of percentages? <coughs> um, so I got a pie chart on my slide. Oh, maybe we, maybe we can get it up for you. Slide. Oh, maybe. good idea. So, 58%, 59% are these single arm stores. There seems to be a trend that I'm reading about in this industry now towards consolidation of large uh, 
just uh, you know uh, Costco and, and, and uh, Walmart, but other large more than, than twenty-four problem type type uh, uh, feeling businesses that own multiple stores, maybe even hundreds of stores. So maybe that'll change over the next decade. But today the situation is lots of small businesses. But if, if we're talking twenty percent. Availability potentially that will initially be in the, the large stores that have more options, more capital, but mm -hmm. are probably a lot more profitable. Mm -hmm. Okay, there's a number of the most um, sophisticated convenience store chains um, that, and so putting in a new thing is much, much cheaper if you go when you put them in the new station. Sure. You know, the incremental cost is pretty low. There's, there's a number of new uh, convenience store chains that are putting in extra tanks um, as they build stations just, just to be prepared for whatever they may, may need for the future. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, okay, last question. In the back. A follow-up question to this discussion. Did you do any calculations on the relative cost of uh, converting the station to E E25 or E30 uh, compared to how much it costs to convert the pump to stage two vapor recovery? Um, no, we don't. I don't have that information off the top of my head. It's a very interesting question. <coughs> Any other last questions? Okay, uh, go ahead. Uh, if you, to a layman, it seems like you could have two tanks. Could you? Uh, a Bill Graham, I mean, To a layman, that would seem like you could have two tanks, and one would be your Bob tank and the other your ethanol tank, and then have a blender pump to give you any blend that you want. Is there regulatory issues of who is certifying the fuel when you do that? Are they, is, are they at this point, are they... Tank farms certifying fuel or what? I, I think it would need to be a, a finished gasoline E10 tank and an ethanol tank. I, I'm not sure that the, the, re, the retailers can actually be the blender of the finished gasoline. Um, I, and I think that's actually happening in some places. There is some concern with, I don't know how really it is, with uh, handling. Uh, denitrate fuel ethanol, not limiting gasoline, because it, it, the vapor pressure above it can be in the, the final range under certain conditions, and so that has to be handled appropriately. Um, there's some concern that not all retailers really know what they're doing with that. Uh, but, I, but I believe in some states, uh, the, the state regulators, and this is more from a safety perspective, are allowing uh, basically what you described with E10 and you know, should less than all the new blender-to-blender pumps. Did you want to add anything, Brian? Uh, I don't know the numbers, but there are. There's only order of 3,000 stations that offer E85. Some number of those are blender pumps, and they already offer, you know, E0, E10, E15, E30, maybe even E15, right, Dave? Um, so, that's a, as Cali said, sometimes that's a, that's a retail, retailer trying to distinguish themselves from their competition. But uh, so when I, you know, we did the, the Wildman throttle study with the flexible vehicles, 
you know, instead of the FFB on the pull-up and getting E10, it would be great if we can get them all clamor for E30 and E25 and, and, and ask for that. So, uh, yeah, but I don't know how many of your blenders are you? I'll try to find them. Christy Moriarty would probably know that she's not here. But we're happy to find that and make that information available to talk to Christy and get that information. Because I think it's important in terms of looking at all these issues that it sounds to me like there are a lot of benefits moving forward and that, that there are not insurmountable challenges by any stretch of the imagination. And then in terms of at least going to an E25 blend, it should not be that difficult a situation in terms of looking at costs and existing infrastructure. Um, so that there are certainly opportunities and that it's also important, I think, in terms of thinking about um, how people get information and how many people are really aware of what is available where. And that probably retailers need to do a better job of that as, as well as um, uh, you know, looking at, at automakers, etc., in terms of just getting uh, more information out to the public about what's available. Carol, just a comment to mm -hmm. your point. I, I don't think it's insurmountable at all. I think mm -hmm. there's some key things that EPA can do that will facilitate this for retailers and the automakers to move ahead with this, whether it's uh, the cafe credits, whether it's a certification field. But there's a few simple things that they could do that would uh, facilitate this activity happening in the marketplace. Great. Well, then hopefully people are going to be asking them to do that. Okay, great. I want to thank all of our speakers. I think that they probably are all very willing to take other questions and uh, provide information. Uh, going forward, or if you want to give us the questions, we're happy to to uh, get those to them. And I want to thank you all very, very much for your time and all of your research and for coming and talking to uh, talking to us today. So we really, really appreciate it. Thank you all. <laughs>